1 Corinthians 1, verses 10 through 17. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Uh, please join me in a brief time of prayer. <clears throat> Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, once again we come before your, your throne and into your presence, and we pray, Lord God, that by your Holy Spirit you would open our, our minds and our eyes and our ears and our hearts. We pray that you would make us sensitive to the Word of God. We pray that you would crush any trace of pride that indwells us, that we might humbly bow before your word. And we pray that we would take the message that was penned through your apostle Paul to heart, Lord God, and that we would not think that this text or that this book simply applies to a far-off church 2,000 years ago and has nothing to do with us. Father, we pray that you would focus our attention upon you, upon your Son, and upon your glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> so, Paul begins this, uh, this letter, he begins the main body of this letter uh, by encouraging unity. And I think that is worth noting. Um, I mean, he does start with a bit of thanksgiving uh, up front to let them know that he is thankful for them. But now he gets to his point. And it's worth noting because this is what then defines the rest of the book. And this is really true of all of Paul's letters, and in fact, this is actually true of just good writing. Uh, I remember back when I took English in college, I'll never forget, simple writing lessons that were given to me by my English teacher, is that when you write a good paper, uh, you always begin with an intro, which is where you tell the reader what you're about to tell them. Then in the body, you tell them, and then in the conclusion, you tell them what you just told them. And so Paul is now setting 
the stage for what he is about to tell them. Throughout the rest of the book, it's all driven by this main point, unity. Unity in the body. Unity in the church. This is because the church in Corinth, as we know, was struggling with all sorts of division of uh, various kinds. But of course, this makes sense because nearly, nearly all churches struggle with division on some level, right? On some level, every church struggles with division because anytime you get a group of people together, particularly sinful people, and we're all sinful, right? There is always going to be disagreement in terms of opinions, in terms of ideas. Some of these differences will be minor and can be easily dealt with. Some of them are major and run the risk of dividing the church. The church has always dealt with division historically. For the last 2,000 years, there have been issues that have Uh, divided the church and threatened to even split the church. The church wrestled with division over the doctrine of inerrancy. How do we deal with that? What do we mean by the inerrancy of Scripture? The church dealt with division over the Trinity. During the Reformation, the 16th century, the church dealt with division over the doctrine of justification by faith alone and what is at the heart of the gospel. But the church has always been able to overcome these divisions um, within them. But it's not just divisions within the last 2,000 years. God's people have always wrestled with division of some kind and on some level. Cain and Abel divided over how to worship God. Right? What is the proper way in which to worship? Aaron and Miriam in Numbers chapter 12, there's a division there when they come to Moses and say, why are you in charge? Right? Who died and made you king? Of course, God makes his opinion known by causing Miriam to break out with leprosy, and they understand that Moses is in charge. There was a division Within Israel, when they spy out the land, right? Remember that story? Joshua and Caleb, we got to go in. We can take it. The other 10 say, no. Most of the nation sides with the 10 spies. And of course, they bring upon themselves the the anger of God, and God causes them to wander in the wilderness for some 40 years. Of course, there was division at the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. Right? What do we do with the Gentile believers? Do they keep the law? Do they not keep the law? If they don't keep the law, what about Jewish believers? Do they have to still keep the law? And if they keep the law, how much of the law? There's division within the church. There's always been division amongst God's people. It's not something that can be avoided, but it's certainly something that needs to be addressed and fought against. Today's churches divide over various 
theologies and approaches to church worship, right? We still see that and we hear about that in various churches. Should we sing hymns in church? Maybe just hymns. We should only sing hymns because we know that that's what they do in heaven, right? Maybe we should just sing the Psalter and only the Psalter. No, no, we should sing only contemporary music so we, should be, we can be relevant and we can reach people with the music that they hear on Caleb. We should have blended worship, and then there's the really spiritual people. We should only sing a cappella. No music, just our voices. Should we be a liturgical church? And if so, how liturgical should we be? Or should we be more of a laid-back, flip-flops and T-shirt kind of church? We should do church worship the way Mark Dever does church worship, right? Because I'm a Deverite, and he's my hero. Or maybe we should do church worship the way Jeff Durbin does church worship because I'm a Durbanite. And I think the way that they do church worship is better. What should we be focused on as a church? Some churches believe that the focus of their church and of every ministry in their church should be on social justice. Dealing with critical, with the race issues and social injustice in the world That is what the church is to be about. There are others who would say, no, no, we ought to be focused on youth ministry, right? Because if you want to change the world, you got to start with the kids. I can't tell you how many times I heard that in seminary. So it's all about the kids. Everything we do is about the kids, ministering to the kids, attracting the kids, making church fun for them. We should be about feeding the homeless. That should be the entire drive of our church, feeding the homeless, taking care of the poor. Well, here's a thought. How about the church simply be focused on the gospel? What? That's boring. Really? Everybody knows that. That's sort of just a part of being a church. We got to find our niche, right? We've got to find our niche as a church. What are we going to focus on? Even within local churches, there are those who can gravitate toward and circle themselves around their favorite elder or their favorite deacon or their favorite ministry leader or their favorite ministry. You can end up with these little groups and these little pockets within the church. You see, this is what Paul is dealing with in 1 Corinthians. And it's not an issue that is only unique to the church in Corinth. Churches still struggle with this today. And so he starts in verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. 
The Greek word for brothers is the Greek word adelphoi, which can be translated as brethren, as the King James does, brothers and sisters, because we know that he's talking to the entire church, right? Because back in verse 2, he says, to the church of God that is in Corinth. So he's talking to everyone. And the Greek word can be translated as brethren, so lest the ladies think they are being left out, you're not. Paul is talking to men and women. But notice he says, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Literally, on account of or because of Christ's name. For the sake of Christ, for the sake of Christ's glory, for the sake of his name, Paul says, all of you must agree and there cannot be any divisions among you. You see, Paul's primary concern is how the division within the church is going to be reflected upon the community outside of the church. What is this going to say about the name of Christ if there is infighting and division within the church? It robs the gospel of any meaning. Because if the gospel cannot truly unite people from various backgrounds and cultures and races and economic status, then nothing can. And there is no gospel. And the world was, is without hope. And this is all a farce. And we're simply all a bunch of hypocrites. And we are wasting our time. Paul drives home the point in Ephesians chapter 1 that there is one body, that Christ has broken down the dividing wall and has brought together both Jews and Gentiles, making one body, one church, one people. And so right on the very beginning of his letter, he begins the body of this entire book in the first sentence with this, it is all about Christ and his glory. That is what matters. Set your differences aside for the glory of Christ and for his name. Recently, as a family, I've started taking my family through the, uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and uh, as you know, the first question of that wonderful catechism is, what is the, the chief end of man? And the answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And I think that's absolutely right. Presbyterians may be wrong in other areas, but they are dead right on that first question. The chief end of man, the reason we exist, the reason God created us is for his glory. To bring him glory in the way in which we live, in the way in which we speak, in the way in which we interact with one another, in the way in which we interact with the world. And if that is true of every human being that exists, it is certainly true of the church. 
The church exists for the glory of God. And God is not glorified when the church is divided. But sometimes division within a church is not so blatantly overt. Sometimes it's more subversive. Because in almost any church, there are always those, a handful of people who don't particularly like the church. Or there's particular aspects of the church, particular ministries of the church, or a particular theological point that the church holds to. Or maybe there's something about the worship that they just quite don't like. Or they don't like the vision of the church, or they don't like the direction that the church is going in. But they stay. Why? Well, because they're going to fix the church. They're going to do the church a favor, and they're going to remain in the church and do what they can to get the church on the right direction. Because that's... That's their calling in life. That's a mistake. And it is always a mistake to do that, regardless of what church you are a part of. And I'll give you four reasons why. First, it is simply arrogant for someone to make themselves the self-appointed Martin Luther of the church. I'm going to reform the church because I know better. Secondly, it is simply dishonest and deceptive to not be forthright with the leadership of the church. I've said that to people over the years who have come to me from other churches, churches that I would never attend because just very theologically different from myself, but a true church. I've had people come to me because they knew that I was a Christian or that I was a pastor. Said, you know, I'm struggling with something in my church. I don't think what they're doing is right. I think it ought to change. It ought to be different. What do you think I ought to do? Well, I think you ought to go talk to your, your pastor about it. Go talk to your elders. Wow, ah, they, won't, they won't listen. I'm thinking I should start a Bible study and start teaching this view. That is wrong. It is simply dishonest and deceptive to remain in a church that you don't agree with. Thirdly, it is cowardly to not be willing to bring your concerns to the leadership. And fourthly, this is the biggest reason, in the end, you may be able to gather a significant portion of people to agree with you, but ultimately you won't get everyone. And the inevitable result when this happens in any church is a church split. It always ends in a church split. So if you're in a church, this church or any church for that matter, and you disagree with some aspect of the church, I actually talked about this at our membership class yesterday. You have one of two choices, I always tell people. One, go and talk to the leadership about it. But if you're concerned about that, then simply keep your opinion to yourself. Really, keep your opinion to yourself. If you do take it to the leadership and they hear you and they simply disagree, 
then I hate to be blunt, but your only two choices at that point are to remain in the church and to remain peaceful and quiet or to leave the church quietly. And again, I say that of any church. That's what I've told people who have come to me from charismatic churches. If you don't agree with your pastor, then you need to find a church that you do agree with. But don't you dare stir up division within your church. It is simply unbiblical, and Christians do it all the time. This is what Paul is concerned about in verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. That all of you agree. Interesting wording if you've got the King James Version. The King James says that yea, all may speak the same thing. That's great because that's actually literal from the Greek. The Greek actually says that all of you would speak the same words, that you would all speak the same thing, that you would all use the same language. I think Paul's point is that you would all share the same philosophy of ministry, that you would all have the same vision for the church, that you would all have the same desires for the church. Paul says you have got to be on the same page. Church in Corinth, tapestry, community church. He says that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind, that is, that you all think the same. He wants them to think the same about church, about worship, about the Christian life, and the same judgment. The Greek word for judgment is the Greek word gnome which more often than not in your English Bibles is usually translated as opinion. So he tells the church in Corinth, look, when it comes to the church, I want you guys to talk the same, to have the same opinion regarding the church, to think the same regarding the church. And all of this is to be done for the sake of the name of Christ and for his glory. He wants them to be on the same page, that there will be no divisions within the church, so that the name of Christ might not be discredited. All for the sake of the gospel, which he will drive home when we get to verse 17. It's all about Christ. It's all for the sake of the gospel. Paul will make that point emphatically clear in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Paul says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What calling is he talking about? He's talking about the gospel calling. Live your life, and keep in mind, In the book of Ephesians, he's writing to a church as well. He's writing to the church in Ephesus. And he says, I want all of you, church in Ephesus, to live your lives in a manner that is worthy 
of the gospel calling. What does that look like? Verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Eager to maintain unity. That's what the church should look like. For the sake of Christ's name, for the sake of the gospel, to live our lives in a manner that is worthy of the gospel by which we have been called, Paul says we ought to strive to maintain unity within the church, not create division. And of course, they are probably wondering why Paul is saying this to them, right? Because he starts with, you know, this great intro, right? I'm so thankful for all of you and the blessing that you've been. And they're thinking, oh, this is great. Paul wrote this letter. And then they get to verse 10. Wham! What? Why? Why is he saying this? Why does he write this? So Paul immediately gives them an explanation in verses 11 and 12. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. So Paul has received this report from Chloe, and we don't know anything about Chloe. This is the only place in the New Testament where her name appears. So we don't know who Chloe is, but apparently she is someone who had to have been familiar with both Paul and the church in Corinth, otherwise he wouldn't have mentioned her name. It may be that she was the one who carried the first letter to the church in Corinth. Remember, in our introductory sermon, I talked about the fact that there is a letter that was written before 1 Corinthians. We know that because he references it in chapter 5, verse 1. And so it may be that she carried that first letter to the church in Corinth. And then, of course, it's a long journey. You know, they don't have a post office back then. People hand-carried mail. She hand-carried it, and, of course, she stays for a few weeks, maybe even a few months, visits with them, goes to church with them, and she sees all of this division that is going on. She goes back to Paul, and she reports all of the division that has been taking place. And she reports to Paul that they have gravitated toward their favorite Bible teacher. And they have begun to form cliques within the church. You've got some who follow Apollos because, well, Apollos is the great evangelist and Bible teacher and apologist. And he's just like us. You know, he's, he's ordinary. He rose from the ashes, you know, and I can relate to Apollos. Then you have some who identify with Paul. Yeah, Apollos, he's all right. We follow Paul because, I mean, he's the great apostle. Paul, he performs miracles. Christ appointed him on the Damascus road. He is actually an apostle of Jesus Christ. So if I'm going to listen to anybody, I'm going to listen to Paul. 
Right? Then you got those who have aligned themselves with the teachings of Peter. Yeah, Paul, he might be great and all, but Peter, he's one of the original 12. Right? Paul wasn't. Paul wasn't one of the original. Peter, one of the originals, was on the Mount of Transfiguration, walked on water, was a part of Jesus' inner circle. Yeah. No, I think Peter's the guy to really listen to when it comes to teachings and theology. Then you've got the super spiritual ones who are only going to follow Jesus, right? If it's not written in red, I just ignore it. I don't worry about all the rest. I follow Jesus. You know, we laugh, but this is not very different than today, right? We all listen to our favorite podcast preachers. We all listen to our favorite YouTube Bible teachers, and then we bring those ideas into the local church and say, why don't we do church this way? This is obviously the better way to do it. How do you know that? Because MacArthur said it. And we ought to do church that way. And thus Paul straightens them out by showing them how ridiculous they're being. Look at verse 13. Is Christ divided? So he shows them how ridiculous they're being by asking them three rhetorical questions, rapid fire, all um, requiring a negative response. And the first one he asks, is Christ divided? Now this may be a preview to what he's going to talk about in chapter 12, verses 12 to 13, but he hasn't gotten there yet, obviously. So the only implication would seem to be that Paul, in his prior letter, has already spoken to them and has taught them the doctrine of the union of Christ, of being in union with Christ, of the body of Christ. And so it may be that when he gets to chapter 12, he's actually revisiting and reminding them of something that he has already taught them. But in chapter 12, verses 12 and 13, Paul writes this, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So Paul says, you all are being ridiculous because Christ is not divided. You're all members of one body, the body of Christ. How can Christ be divided against himself? And then he asked, was Paul crucified for you? In other words, should you be indebted to me? Did I die for your sins? Did Peter die for your sins? Did Apollos die for your sins? No, they didn't. Then why the loyalty? Why circle the wagons around these individuals? Why be so committed 
to these mere humans? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? In other words, Paul is asking, did I make you a disciple of mine? Right? Because what did Jesus say in the Great Commission? Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of Peter, Paul, and John. No, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Paul says, I didn't baptize you into the name of Paul. I didn't go there to make you my disciple. I went there to make you a disciple of Christ. I baptized you in the name of Christ. But again, we need to be careful of laughing at the church in Corinth and pointing our fingers at them because so oftentimes in many of today's churches, we run across MacArthurites and Piperites and Deverites, right? Durbanites and Kellerites. And these people have their favorites. And that's what they want to drive into the church. We ought to be like them. Because they obviously know what they're talking about. And let's mimic it. Now, I want to be careful and qualify what I'm saying. That is not to say that listening to sermons or reading books is not a good thing. I don't want to discourage that. Listening to sermons and reading good theology books written by gifted pastors and Bible teachers is a good thing. Because we have to remember that in Ephesians 4.11, two of the gifts that God gives to the church for the equipping of the saints to do the work of ministry, Paul tells us, are pastors and teachers. If God gave the gifts of pastors and teachers to the church, he obviously thinks that we need them. And so when we read these books written by pastors and teachers of the Bible, whether dead or living, we are learning from those gifts which God has given us. But obviously, we should always read these books or listen to these sermons with the book in one hand and the Bible in the other, right? Always weighing against Scripture what we read. So we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, which is to say that we also ought not to say that I'm just going to read the Bible. I don't read books by men. I don't listen to sermons by men. I go to church and I listen to my pastor because I kind of have to tolerate his sermons because the Bible commands that I be there. But otherwise, I just, I just read the Bible. Be careful with that approach because to take that approach is to say to God, I neither need nor want the two gifts that you have given to the church for the equipping of the saints for ministry. We don't want to say that to God. If he gave the church pastors and teachers, apparently God thinks we need them, and we do. 
There are good books out there to read. So read them. I'd encourage you to. But the Bible takes priority over any book written by a man. Nevertheless, there's all kinds of divisions happening in the church. And so Paul then says to them in verses 14 to 16, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, right? So he, he makes that point, were you baptized in the name of Paul? Then he sort of goes off on a tangent and says, man, phew, I am so thankful I didn't baptize any of you. So you don't have a reason really to try to align yourself with me, except for Crispus and Gaio, Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Then Paul realizes, oh, hold on, I need to be honest, right? I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. But beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else, right? Hopefully he didn't, or they were probably highly offended. He doesn't remember me. I'm hurt. But you know, this is a day and age when Paul just couldn't go delete, 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 right? Let me rewrite that sentence. Right? Paper was expensive and hard to come by back then. So he wrote, I only baptized Crispus and Gaius and then realized, oh, wait a minute, now that I think about it. Or maybe someone standing near him said, don't forget the household of Stephanus, right? You, you did baptize. All oh, right, I got to put that in there. So he includes that, but then says, beyond that, whether I baptize anybody else, I honestly do not recall. But then he offers an explanation as to why he baptized so few of them. Because he did not make baptism an emphasis. It was not a point of his ministry, and here's why. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its Power. Now, at first reading, it seems odd that he would say that. Christ did not send me to baptize because the Great Commission includes baptism, right? Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? So that, that is kind of part of what Paul is supposed to be doing. But Paul understands that baptism is subservient to regeneration. The point is not how many people Paul can baptize or how many people churches can baptize, right? Even today, churches count baptisms. How many baptisms did you have last year? The whole focus is on the number of baptisms. Paul right here says, I wasn't sent to baptize. I was sent to preach the gospel, the gospel is the central focus of my ministry and of my life, and it ought to be the central focus of your church. So he begins and he ends this section with the gospel, the cross of Christ, the glory of Christ, the name of Christ. The church in Corinth have gotten off track. We'll see that as we go through the book. They're focused on so many different things, they're focused on everything but the right thing, the gospel. 
is what they should be focused on. Not focused on baptism, nor should they be focused on preaching the gospel with eloquent words of wisdom, lest it be emptied of its power, Paul says. What does he mean by that? What Paul means, I think, is that if people get saved because of Paul's ability to formulate strong, convincing, persuasive arguments, then who gets the credit for their salvation? Paul or Christ? See, Paul doesn't want to get any credit for people's salvation. And so Paul keeps the gospel simple. He keeps it simple because the gospel is simple. You're a sinner in need of a Savior. Christ is that Savior who died on the cross for sins. And if you will repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ, you will be saved. That's it. That's the gospel. Nothing left out. Believe, repent, and believe. Right? That was Peter. What must we do to be saved? Repent and believe. Because ultimately, Paul understands, as he says in Romans 1.16, there he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it, the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel message in all of its simplicity, is the power of God unto salvation. That's encouraging to us. Because the power for people to get saved and be regenerated does not lie within us, within our ability to present convincing, apologetical arguments to people. Because if it did, then we could get the credit. The gospel, the power, lies in the simplicity of the gospel message. And then it is the Holy Spirit working through that gospel message in the heart of unbelievers to open their eyes to the glory of Christ. In fact, that's what Paul's going to go on to talk about in this next section. The gospel is so simple that people think it's foolish. You actually want us to believe that this simple little gospel message is what saves us from an eternity of hell? From an all-powerful, all-knowing God? Surely it's more complicated than that. Surely we have to climb some ginormous mountain and offer all of the right sacrifices and cut ourselves and dance in certain ways. And No, you don't. The gospel is really that simple. Because it's God who saves. It's the Holy Spirit who saves. And so Paul says, I didn't come to preach baptism. So don't align yourselves with me. I came to simply preach the gospel. Thus, what the world needs, what every church needs, is not persuasive arguments. The world does not need all kinds of snazzy church ministries. The world does not need an awesome worship experience with smoke machines and the lights turned down low and confetti being blown through the vents. 
The world does not need preachers who look cool and trendy. What the world needs is the gospel. The world needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. And thus Paul begins by stating the problem within the church. And then he ends this section by pointing them to the solution. They need to focus themselves and they need to be united and to unite themselves around Christ and him crucified. Paul will drive that point home in the strongest possible terms. For example, when we get to chapter 2, verse 2, he'll say, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because that's what it's all about. It is all about the cross of Christ. And when churches are focused upon Christ and him crucified, it will bring unity and harmony and peace within the church. Let's pray. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Father, as we reflect upon the message that uh, Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, we pray that you would cause us to realize and to be humble enough to realize that we are not above the possibility of falling into this same demise. I pray that you would enable us to be humble enough that we would not look down our noses at the church in Corinth as though this could never happen to our church. Father, I pray that you would help us to stay focused upon the gospel, upon Christ and him crucified, that we might ever be a united church for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.